Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And we are reminded that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What a beautiful gift God's given to us in His Word. And if you didn't think it were possible, I'm going to slow down here in this point in the book of Exodus. And as we come to chapter 20, we come to what we know to be the Ten Commandments. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we'll take each commandment at a time and trust that the Lord will bless His Word as we do that. But now that you've been settled, would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's Word? And let's read here Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. As I come to the end of 17, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord. And together, we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the Word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to give you a pop quiz this morning, you might not like that. I think, oh, we're done with pop quizzes. It's like when I was back in school. Pop quiz this morning. If I were to ask you to pull out a blank sheet of paper and ask you one question, list out in order the Ten Commandments, how would you do? Now, hopefully, we just read it, so hopefully you do all right. Maybe if you wouldn't get them all in order, maybe you would at least get all ten. But if you were the astute student, the student looking for the loophole, maybe you would ask the teacher, well, which ten? Which ten? Doesn't everyone know the ten? I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, right? The content of the Ten Commandments is the same, but some people number them differently. So Roman Catholics and Lutherans number them one way. Traditional Jews number them another way. Protestants, particularly in the reform stream, number them a different way that's based on an old Jewish reading of the Ten Commandments. We're going to stick with the Protestant reading, which is what I believe is the correct reading. And while sometimes some people might struggle to number all ten, can I get these right? Can I number them all? Can I put them in order. Many still know that the Ten Commandments hold a prominent place in the Bible. So some people might not know much about the Bible, but I would dare say that even if they didn't know much about the Bible, they would say, yeah, I know the Ten Commandments are in the Bible somewhere. But as we think about the Ten Commandments, do we really need the Ten Commandments? I mean, they come from the Old Testament, after all. Are they still binding on us as Christians today, as those who follow Christ? Should they have any bearing on how we live our life now? Or are they obsolete, so we can just ignore them, forget them, get over them? Are the Ten Commandments relevant to the Christian life? And even more, are they relevant to the world that we live in today? Should we fight to have statues of the Ten Commandments erected outside of courthouses or place them in prominent places in our public schools? What should be their place in our lives, in our world, or even in the church of Jesus Christ? I hope and pray as we go through these Ten Commandments that it will give us greater clarity how to answer these questions and other questions And as we take time to carefully work through these Ten Commandments, 
I pray that we would be able to understand them, hear from them, be able to place them in the overarching plan of God's redemption. He has been unfolding since his creation. We do recognize at the beginning the Ten Commandments are at the heart of the law. When I say the law, I mean the biblical law, what the Jews would call the Torah. This is the heart. These 17 verses. Everything else flows out from these. So while there are a lot of other commands in the Bible and in the Old Testament, and I think if someone were to count them, you'd count over 600 commands in the Old Testament. All of those are flowing out of these Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are at the heart of the covenant that the Lord is making with His people Israel. So remember, as Israelites are gathered here together on Mount Sinai, they've just seen the Lord descend to the top of Mount Sinai. They've seen the fire and the lightning and the thunder and the smoke that has enveloped the whole mountain. And they are there quaking and shaking in their boots, trembling before the Lord. He comes to them. And he gives them his heart. He wants to make a relationship with them. He wants to show them his love. And so these then are the covenant stipulations. How they are to live, what they are to obey, and what they are to keep if they are to be the blessing of being God's treasured possession. If they are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation before God. Not knowing much about the content of the Ten Commandments, some people in our world might make the Ten Commandments everything that the Bible says. They might say, that's all that the Bible is, is commandments. It's just rules, 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 more rules. They might view the Bible that way. Maybe they would complain, the Bible just says, do this, don't do this, don't have any fun, don't have any joy, don't experience any pleasure, don't have any freedom. And they bristle and reject the thought of anyone telling them how they ought to live, how they should live, what they should do. How many don't want to hear that they are ever wrong, don't want to hear that the choices that they've made in their life have broken God's law, and they certainly don't want to be told that they are sinful. This is why we have to go back to the Ten Commandments to make sure that we understand them. To make sure that we are reading them correctly. To make sure that we only not only know the content, but we're able to apply that content to our own lives. To be able to see how they fit into the overall context of Scripture. After all, I would dare say that none of us, I pray, would condense all of Scripture down into just these 17 short verses. As important and as necessary as they are, thank God there is more to the story. If it was just the Ten Commandments, how might that be some bad news? But God doesn't end just with bad news. There's good news, good news that He gives to us. And so the story progresses on from these and must progress on from these. And so as we make our way through this passage of Scripture, 
Let us pray together that the Lord would help us understand them, read them the right way, read them the way that he wants us to read them, the way that they're meant to be read, and let the Spirit then apply the truth of God's word through the Ten Commandments into our hearts. And that we would read them in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and see that Jesus Christ transforms the Ten Commandments. It's necessary that we begin with these first two verses here, verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 20. We cannot skip over these true, crucial, and important verses. If we do, our whole reading of the Ten Commandments will be off base. So these first two verses are the prologue or the prelude or the introduction, if you will, to all of the Ten Commandments. They lay the foundation upon which the commandments are built. And so what is the necessary foundation that God is laying before he launches into the Ten Commandments? What's the foundation? Here it is. It's God's grace. That's the foundation that he lays. As God directs Israel to keep and obey his commandments, it is rooted and grounded in the very grace of God. It is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God that has been lavished upon the people of God, which becomes the motivating and driving factor in their desire and in their pursuit of obeying these commandments. If we are to rightly understand and interpret the Ten Commandments, we're only able to do so in the light of God's grace. So where do we see the Lord's grace in these verses? Well, number one, if you could follow along in your bulletin, if that's helpful, number one, and don't freak out. I know there are six points this morning. We will, Lord willing, get through them all. The last three will come quickly. Number one this morning, the Lord is gracious in his words. The Lord is gracious in his words. Before we get any further, I need to correct myself. I've been saying something over and over and over again, and you probably didn't even notice. I've been calling these the Ten Commandments. That's how we often know them. That's how we often refer to them, the Ten Commandments of God. But the Bible never calls them the Ten Commandments. In fact, they're only referred to three other times in the Old Testament, and each time it is the Ten Words. So that's what these are. These are the ten words from God. In fact, that's what it says in Deuteronomy, or Exodus, I'm sorry, Exodus 34, 28. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. So we know that there are ten words. Why ten words? Why not seven? Why not twelve? Why not a hundred? Why ten words? Well, let's think for a moment about what we know about Ten in the Bible. Ten is this picture of completeness. It's this picture of wholeness. So in a certain sense, these are the ten words that hold a prominent place that are telling us the very heart of God's law that he is laying down. And again, in one sense, all of the other commandments are flowing out of these ten words. And so if we put it bluntly, these are the ten words that 
they needed. All that they needed. But why ten words? We know it's wholeness, completion. Okay, God's giving us this complete picture of how He wants lives ordered, the lives of Israel in particular. But do you know that this is not the first ten words that God has spoken in the Bible? Turn with me for a moment back to Genesis 1. This is crucial for our understanding, I think, of the ten words that God speaks on Mount Sinai. You get to Genesis 1, and it's here, in Genesis 1, that God actually speaks ten words. And you can see it in a repetition. So, Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, then God said. Verse 28, and God said. Verse 29, and God said. Ten times in Genesis 1, we have this repeating refrain, and God said. And so now we come to another ten words, and so these first ten words should inform our understanding of these next ten words that God is giving to us. The word and the power of the word of God is put on prominent display. Why is there anything at all? There's anything at all because God has created it. Everything owes its existence to the very word of God. Everything is created by the word of God. Everything in the whole entire universe hangs upon the very word of God. And so what are we to expect with the next ten words? We should expect God's powerful word to reign supreme again. We should now expect not just everything, but these people's lives in particular to hang upon the very word of God. Is that where your life hangs? Is that what your life depends upon? My life depends and hangs upon the very word of God. It's that word that sustains me. It's that word that supports me. It's that word that actually has created me to be who I am and also created me to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. We cannot move on from God's words. Our lives depend upon his word. Just as he is telling the Israelites, your very lives, Israelites, are to hang upon my word. And what a beautiful phrase here at the very beginning of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. What a highlight this puts on God. Our God is there and he is not silent. Our God speaks. And when he speaks, God's people are to listen. They are to pay attention. What a great lowering of himself, a condensation of himself, that God would so accommodate himself to speak to us in such a way 
that we can hear and that we can understand Him. The infinite, all-knowing God speaks to us, lowly, finite, fallen man. And it also tells us that God is the author of these ten words. And what happens here in this first verse is something unusual. Because here in verse 1, and God spoke all these words, these are coming to all the people of Israel, all of God's people, at the same time. There's no mediator. This isn't God saying to Moses, Moses, go tell the people these Ten Commandments. These are all the people receiving God's Word at the same time. It's not a prophet going to the people saying, thus says the Lord. There's no go-between. This is God speaking directly to His people. And look at how everyone then is put in the same position. Everyone then is a hearer. Moses is a hearer. Aaron is a hearer. The elders of the congregation are here. The priests, the men, the women, the children. Everyone at the same time is put in the same position. And God's word is to rule over them all. No one is above it. No one is able to get around it. No one is able to say, I am the exception to the rule. We're good at that, aren't we? <laughs> I'm the exception. We're quick to find how these words might not apply to us. God spoke all these words to all of them equally and with the same responsibility. And isn't it the same for us? When God's word speaks to us, we are all in the same posture of listening. Elders, deacons, men, women, children, young, old, rich, poor, healthy, or frail. When the word of God speaks, we are to listen. And as Christians, we cannot help but listen. We want to listen. We desire to listen. And how I'm even amazed at how God has spoken these words, and at the same time, He has impressed this law and these words on man's conscience. So much so that they cannot get around God's word. Try as many people might, when God spoke, not only did he engrave them on tablets of stone, he engraved them into human minds. And so even atheists, even those who would say there is no God, those who would deny the very existence of God, cannot blot out the writing of God's word upon their consciences and upon their minds. As much as they would like to remove these words, they cannot. To those who would resist and reject all these words that God spoke, means more torture and misery from the words that you cannot remove from your conscience. But for the one who receives God's word, who lets it penetrate and take root in your life, let it rule over you, let it transform you, let it give you life, and let your life hang on the very words of God. Hebrews 3 says this, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
The Lord is gracious in his words, in his word. Number two, the Lord is gracious in his person. The Lord is gracious in his person. The first words God speaks, he identifies himself. I am the Lord. Who is this? This is the Lord speaking. Here we go back to what was said to Moses in chapter 3 when he asked for God's name and God said, I am who I am. And he was to tell the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me to you. Who is the Lord? He is the self-existent one. He is the self-sufficient one. He is the one who, the only one who is truly independent. He needs no one else and nothing else in order to sustain his existence. He has always been, he is even now, and he always will be. He is the eternal and majestic Lord. He is revealing himself to be the sovereign king over everything. And they are going to have a relationship with this king. What a fascinating thought. We know that this cannot be the invention of man. In this world, the common person, the average man, has no access to earthly kings. Not to mention have a relationship with the king. You want to get close to a king of this world? A president, a ruler? Good luck with that. Not going to happen. And I would dare say, if it does happen, it's probably because of what the king thinks that he will get from you. As the sovereign king, the Lord, Yahweh, is the king that we have a relationship, the king that we have access to, the king who loves us, the king who lavishes his grace upon us. And as the sovereign king, he is the king who has authority over us. His words hold weight and responsibility in our lives, but these are the words that bring about relationship with him. A relationship, and we even see that here. I am the Lord, your God. This is the covenantal language. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Dear brother and sister, let us see that these words, your God, are for our benefit because this is the God who loves us. How is God able to be our God? Because he loved us first, because he gave of himself first, because he has come to us. The only way God can be our God is if God gives himself to us. What a great and gracious gift that God would give himself to us. And the first half of verse 2 also draws our attention to highlight that this is really all about God. Look at these first two verses. How much is about God? I would say all of it. 
How much is about us? Very little. Where does God start when he begins these ten words? He begins with himself. This is how we are going to understand the ten words. We only understand them if God is the reference point. To understand the law, we must begin and end with God. And without God being at the center, the one who is holding all things together, the law and the ten worlds will become destructive and even dangerous. When the law is unmoored from God's grace, it becomes a weapon to hurt and to harm and even destroy people. It's the same with these ten words. And it's the same in whole of Scripture. Where does the Bible start? In the beginning, God. Where do the ten words begin? I am the Lord your God. God is primary. He is to be first. He is the reference point unto which we are able to understand everything in His Word and everything in the world around us and even our own lives. The problem is that we would rather have ourselves as the reference point. We would rather put ourselves first. We would like to be the sun that everyone and everything else revolves around, but we cannot and must not start with ourselves. The only way forward, the only way to understanding, the only way to have any hope is to start with God. Dear brother and sister, let me ask you a question. Is your heart discontent? Is it aggravated? Is it disturbed in some way? Is there some angst, something going on inside of you and you don't exactly know why? Some problem something that's not giving you any peace and not giving you any rest? Could it be that part of that problem, I'm not saying always, but could it be that that discontentment, that angst, that unrest in your soul is because God is not primary. God is not first. Again, that's not going to eliminate all of your problems. But could that be the problem in your own heart, in your own soul? Would you take stock? Would you ask yourself that question? Is God primary? Is he first? Am I upset because God is not first in my life and in my heart? Here, God comes to the people. He says, I am the Lord, your God. I am the God who made everything, who owns everything, who is over all. Trust me. Trust me for your good. Why? Because he is good. <laughs> always good. He never fails. He is always faithful. But if you don't trust him, 
if it's about you or if it's about me, my own life. When problems or things come into my life, it causes a lot more problems if God is not first. God is first even in the gospel message. As we think about what the gospel message is, where does the gospel start? God. Who God is. What God has done. Man, who we are. In our sinful and fallen nature, Christ, who he is and what he has done in saving us and rescuing us, and then our response in repentance and faith in him. And this is where the law, the ten words, this is what they do well. They bring us to God. The ten words completely and utterly obliterate a narcissistic approach to life. That is someone who all they're concerned with is how everything references them, how everything exalts them, how everything lifts them up. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words squash that kind of life. Why? Because the Ten Words, they come to us and God holds them up in front of our face as a mirror. And he says, look, this is who you really are. And this is who you really need. The gracious God in his person must have his rightful place in our lives in order to have his right work done in us. Number three, the Lord is gracious in his saving work. The Lord is gracious in his saving work. This is the second half now of verse two. We move from who God is to what God has done. These are his actions towards the Israelites. And we see here the first direct reference to the people. So what does it say about the people? It says, who brought you? This you is very interesting because this word is not you all, plural, like you as a group, you as a people. This word is singular, who brought you, specifically, you, you fill in the blank with your name. As they hear this, as the Israelites heard God speak to them, who brought you, Moses, you, Aaron, you, Miriam, you, Mordecai, put your name in there. He's speaking directly to individuals. Why is he doing this? To underscore the personal nature of, of his divine human relationship with his people. Before, each one is to know his or her personal responsibility to the Lord in these 10 verses, we have to have the certainty and assurance of a personal relationship with God. Doesn't that change everything? God is saying, I have a relationship with you. I love you. Here's what I've done for you to show my love for you. I mean, think about this, even in the realm of being a parent. My child, I love you. I would give myself for you. We have this relationship with each other that's built on love and trust 
Would you listen to me, what I would say? Would you hear what I have to say? Would you accept what I have to say? Because of my great love for you, because of the grace that I'm giving to you, because of the mercy that I'm giving to you, would you listen to me? And look at what the Lord has done. He has saved them. He has delivered them. He has redeemed them. Not because the people deserved it, but because he was gracious to them. There is nothing they had done to earn his saving actions toward them. And these words right here are a painful reminder for us. They remind us of our former condition. We were those who, like the Israelites, were once in bondage. We were those who were once slaved. We were once wallowing in misery. And just as the Lord came to the Israelites and set them free, so the Lord has come to us and set us free. This is what the Lord does. He brings people out of their bondage and out of their exile, and he brings them where? He brings them to himself. Do you remember what it says about Abraham? In Genesis, there it says, the Lord brought out Abram from the Ur of the Chaldeans to the place where he wanted him to go, to Canaan land. What happens here? The Lord brought out his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. Where is he taking them? He's taking them to Canaan land, to the promised land. And dear brother and sister, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in our bondage with no hope in the world, only knowing misery and pain, being dominated and controlled by sin, the Lord came to us, brought us out of our bondage. And where is he leading us? to the new Canaan land, to the promised land, to himself. This is what the Lord does. There was no way out of the house of slavery unless the Lord brought them out and bring them out, he did. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God is the great liberator. He is the one who sets people free. He is the one who gives freedom. He is the one who forgives sin. He is the one who removes sin from the repentant sinner. He makes it so that sin no longer has dominion over you, no longer controls you, no longer is your master. No, you have a new master, a better master, a righteous master, a loving master, a gracious master in God. Why? Why would you ever want to go back to Egypt? Why would you ever want to go back to the house of slavery? Would it ever be that those things would allure us? They would try to draw us in the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let us not sacrifice ourselves to Egypt. 
Let us not sacrifice our children to Egypt. Let us pray that our grandchildren would not be sacrificed to Egypt. God is the Savior. And the law reveals God, points us to Jesus Christ who fulfills the law, who perfectly obeys the law, and is the end and the goal of the law. The fullness of God's grace appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When the grace of God appeared, when did the grace of God appear? In the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he brings us then to these final three points, which we see as the fulfillment of the first three points. Christ is the final word of God. Christ is the final word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Or as we read today in Hebrews 1 already, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The fullness and the completion of God's Word has happened in His Son. There's no other Word that we're looking for. There's no other Word that we need. The Word of God, who is Jesus Christ, is enough. The final, full Word. God has spoken through His Son and through Him revealed everything that we need to know for life and godliness. Christ is the one upon whom our lives hang. And there is no other word that gives life. Jesus, as the word, gives life. And what a contrast. These ten words of the law do not bring life. They cannot bring life, but there is a better word that was to come through Jesus Christ, the word that brings abundant life and the word that brings eternal life. That's the word, the final word we need. Number five, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. This is... First Corinth, or, or I'm sorry, this is Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Or like we read again in Hebrews 1, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Or do you even remember what, what Jesus says to one of his disciples who comes to him and says, Jesus, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? Have you not been with me so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we do we see the person of God in Christ because Christ is God. And then, and then, it's because of Christ we can approach the throne of God and His grace with confidence. 
And finally, number six, Christ fully accomplishes the saving work of God. Christ fully accomplishes the saving work of God. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is in the name of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Or Hebrews 9, verses 26 and 28, or through 28. Hebrews 9, 26 and following. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying Jesus doesn't have to sacrifice himself over and over and over again. Because why? But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by what? By the sacrifice of himself. He sacrificed himself once and for all. He accomplished God's saving work. There is no other work that needs to happen for our salvation. It's Christ's work and Christ's work alone. And then Acts 26 Verse 18. This is what Jesus said to Paul. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How is it that people are released from the power of Satan? How is it that they are to turn from darkness to light? How is it that they are to receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone? This is the good news of the gospel. Gospel first. And these are lives, then, that are grounded in grace. And this must be in place, dear brother and sister. This must be in place in our lives. Like we sang today, my righteousness is Jesus' life. His righteousness is has been imputed or credited to me. I have done nothing to earn it. I have done nothing to deserve it. I have done nothing to work my way to God, to be accepted and seen righteous in his eyes. It's only because of Christ's righteousness that has been given to me that God now sees me as righteous. If Christ had not saved me, if Christ had not opened my eyes, if Christ had not released me from the power of Satan, if Christ had not forgiven me, I would still be dead in my trespasses and sin. But what grace. What amazing grace. What grace has he lavished upon me and upon us, dear Christian? that we would then 
desire and want to live our lives for Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Pray that we have been in the posture of listening and hearing. Each and every one of us Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you, does not know you, has not put their faith and trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today, they would hear your voice through your word and through your son, and that they would give themselves to you, put their faith and trust in you, say, yes, it's because of Christ's work, it's what he's done on that cross It's what he's done to die in my place. It's what he's done to bear the wrath of God that I deserved. It's through him that I can be forgiven. It's through him and his shed blood that would cover me and cleanse me and make me clean. Father, I pray that today they would see that, they would understand that, and that they would run and fly to Jesus Christ. And the one who comes to him, he will never cast out. He will not turn them away. He will embrace them in his loving and in his gracious arms. And so may they know that today. May today be the day of salvation. Father, help us as your people to live lives grounded in grace. That not only would we praise you and thank you that you've been gracious to us, but that then we would be gracious with one another. We pray we would be a people who are filled with and exemplifying grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.